My name is Brian, and I uh, work with our uh, site at the gathering over at Broadway. And normally when we uh, start our time together like this, it takes me about five minutes to get everybody to sit down because we take a 10-minute coffee break. And uh, then when they sit down, I even wonder when they're listening at that point. So this is pretty nice to have you guys all sitting in rows like this and uh, paying attention, at least for now. So the big idea of this teaching series is that Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, is at work in the world, reconciling people to himself and creating new local communities like this one in cities like Saskatoon that in some way represent something of what his reign is going to be like in the world to come. And we've been learning that there are specific practices that we can enter into as people here in this context, in our neighborhoods and in our homes, by which we welcome the presence of Jesus in a unique way. Now, uh, we've kind of been on the same journey at the gathering, so uh, who can tell me what some of the practices are that we've gone through in the last uh, few weeks? Who can tell me? Raise your hand if you, if you know one. Peter, what did you say? Yeah, the Lord's Supper. What's another one? Reconciliation. There's another one. What was last week? Boy, I'm going to have to tell Bruce about this. (laughs) Kingdom prayer, right? I think that was last week, kingdom prayer. And then we also talked about proclaiming the gospel. I wouldn't be doing any better than you guys, so. So today we're talking about being present with children. And I wanted uh, the scripture to be read to you in its entirety because it's really quite an amazing passage. And even as I've wrestled wrestled with this and studied this, I've, I've got to tell you, I've been a bit amazed at what's found here and that this whole passage, in this whole passage, Jesus is referring to children and how we respond to them and how he's specially present in that space between adults and children and children and adults. I've been part of small groups most of my life. Often they would meet in our home. You can advance the slide on that one. Over the years, my wife Amy and others have uh, been a big influence on me in the place that children can have in our communities and in our small groups. And I recall one group that I was a part of for several years. In fact, that was the group that I was a part of just before we came to here to Saskatoon. And we had a large living room. The group would often meet in our living room. I would often be leaving it, leading it. And Amy would have books and wooden train sets and potato head sets scattered in the middle of the room. And the toddlers and the children that were... Uh, also a little older, would be present and they would play and interact as we worshipped and prayed and even as we shared in community, communion together. And we would often have a little communion table to the side. We'd have to hope, put it off on the side because it would get knocked over. And even when we were sharing communion together, we had to have often, we had to keep an eye on that table because the kids might knock it over. And we grew into that as a community. And I remember this happened on quite a few occasions. There was a little girl named Ella. That's her standing there with the Tupperware that she's just dumped all the little guys on the floor. And we would sometimes sing together, and we'd have our little song sheets. And on more than one occasion, as we started to sing, Ella would get her cues from the people around her without even anybody saying anything about it. She would grab her song sheet, she would uh, climb onto the couch, and she would be sitting there with her little legs shooting straight out, and she would sing with us and worship with us, even though she couldn't read. And it struck me again how much of what really matters in life, our attitudes and postures and the deep convictions of our hearts, are things that we don't pick up when people speak to us with their mouths. We pick them up 
as we absorb them in the communities that we're part of and as we watch the people around us live out those values. We're kind of like clay in the hands of a potter, being shaped and formed by the atmosphere that we find ourselves in in the communities that we're part of. Of course, the big challenge to having a group that's truly intergenerational or having a a church that's truly intergenerational is for us as adults to get our heads and hearts around the values and commitments that enable that to happen. So you can have parents that can't relax because they're so uptight about their kids playing or making any noise at all that they can't concentrate. And I was like that as a parent. And you can have adults that think that life should always center around them and they don't get the fact that Jesus can be especially present in that space when adults and children are together. And then you can have parents who see such a context like this as an opportunity to take a break from parenting altogether and their kids run wild and it makes it hard for anybody in the group to get anything out of it. So like any time that you get people together in a group, there's challenges and that there's, it puts opportunities before us to learn and grow and figure out how to love each other. In the scripture that was read for us this morning, Jesus' closest followers came to him and wanted to know who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And if you're familiar with this story, it's also found in, an account of it is also found in Mark Mark 9 and Luke 9 that confirms that Christ's followers, this is the 12 disciples who he had specifically chosen to walk with him and learn from him so that they could represent his kingdom to others, were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus calls a little child to them, and it means little child. So this is like, maybe like that little Ella that I showed there, and tells them that unless they have a change of heart, they won't even get into the kingdom of heaven, much less be great in it. So try to picture this scene with me. These disciples are earnestly trying to sort out how to get ahead in this new society that they believe Jesus is going to implement in the world. They're trying to get a sense of how to advance in that kingdom because that's how life works for us as adults, right? And Jesus takes a toddler, two years old, maybe, small, defenseless, dependent, vulnerable, socially insignificant, defenseless, depending on others, without any social ambitions or drivenness towards upward mobility in any way. And Jesus says that unless you become like this little child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. I guess we could argue that what Jesus is really getting at here is that initially, as you come and seek to enter into the kingdom, you have to have this period of humility, this humbling where you put your faith in Christ. But then after that, you can just go on and continue to live by the values you had before that. But the passage that Sophia read makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is talking about an ongoing posture of childlike humility that's willing to serve and care for people that are of no social significance starting with kids. And and then Jesus says in verse 5, and anyone who welcomes a little child like this in my name, the NIV says, or on my behalf, the NLT says, is welcoming me. So it seems to me that this is where we often sentimentalize this verse. When we talk about it at child dedications, we get the impression maybe that Jesus was a nice guy who really liked kids. Some adults like kids, some adults maybe don't like kids as much. Jesus was a nice guy who really liked kids. I think there's a lot more to, that's going on than this. Notice that there's a couple of warnings against sin. Verse 6, but if, 
you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, I need to acknowledge something here. Scholars argue when in verse 6, Jesus talks about little ones. They wonder whether here he's reverting to metaphorical language and speaking of little ones as young disciples of Jesus or people that are new in the faith. So it seems like in verse, no, it seems like in verse 4, He's talking about an actual living, breathing little child. But then in verse 6, he's switching to metaphorical language. I don't buy that. I've wrestled with this. I've had an open mind about it. It seems to me that the primary intention of Jesus here throughout the passage, right down to the end of verse 14, when he says, in the same way, it's not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. My conviction is that he's talking about children. It could include people who are young in the faith, but I think he's talking about kids. So he says, if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better to have a large millstone. So women, moms, wives had a small millstone that they could use in their house house to grind grain. This was a larger millstone that a donkey would use to grind grain. And Jesus is saying it would be better or preferable for you if you caused one of these little ones to sin. If you had one of these large millstones hung around your neck, tied to your neck, and that you were thrown into the depths of the sea. And then he goes on in verse 7 to 9. And I'm going to read this again because I think we need to hear it. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So he's speaking generally about the fact that within the world, temptation is inevitable, and the system of the world is going to cause people to sin. But then he gets personal and individual, and he says, woe to the individual who causes someone to sin. And he says, if you have a problem in this area, if you're possibly leading people astray by your actions or by your attitudes, and again, remember, we're talking about the context of kids He says, take drastic action. Don't mess around. Cut the whole limb off. Don't put a band-aid on it. Go further up the limb and cut the whole thing off because the consequences are so drastic. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. The word there is Gehenna or Gina, and that comes from a valley that was south of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom, or the Sons of Hinnom. And some of the wicked kings of Israel sacrificed children to the god Moloch in that valley. It was later uh, destroyed during a time of religious renewal, spiritual renewal under Josiah. But it became a garbage dump that was always burning and smoking. And that word Gehenna came to be understood by the time of Jesus as the place of eternal punishment. And Jesus uses this word. You might be tempted to think that the the church's belief about eternal punishment is something that has uh, been fostered by the church to somehow encourage obedience to the teaching of church, the teaching of the church through history. But when you read through the Gospels, and I've been struck by this in the last few years, you know who talks about hell? Jesus. Again and again, when you read through the Gospels, Jesus His worldview was that there is going to be judgment coming on us for the way we respond to God in this world. 
And here Jesus speaks of those drastic consequences in relation to the way that we relate to children. Wow. Verse 10, another warning. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Wow. So he's saying that kids, little ones, are watched over by angelic beings. So we live in this world where there is no division between the spiritual and the real. Where spiritual beings, angels and demons are present with us in the here and the now as real as the material world that we experience and touch and see and feel and hear. In the scriptural worldview, there's no separation of space between those two worlds. And Jesus seems to be saying, this is where the idea of guardian angels comes from. There's another uh, reference in Hebrews to this. But this is it. This is the primary text where we get the idea of guardian angels from. So the idea is, if you think you can despise or neglect these vulnerable, vulnerable children anonymously, you're fooling yourself. Because they have angels who are watching over them who have give direct report to God. So then, Jesus turns from the negative to the positive, And he gives this example of a lost sheep. And how a shepherd who loses a sheep goes to look for it because he values that sheep. And then in verse 14, in the same way, it's not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. So notice the shift of language. Up until this point, the picture of God that we've been getting from Jesus is a picture of God as judge, of God who holds people accountable. Now Jesus shows us why that is. And he speaks of his heavenly Father whose desire is that no one should perish. So what's the good news here? When you think about what the gospel is, what's the good news? What kind of society is Jesus instigating in this world? Jesus is establishing a new community a new society ultimately in which the weak and vulnerable and dependent are valued and loved and cared for, including children, or maybe more accurately, especially children. I remember growing up in La Ronge, uh, just different stories that come to my mind, and there was a man by the name of Gordon Campbell. He has now passed away. He had a Dodge van, a big green Dodge van, a full-size van, probably 13 or 14 passenger, and Sunday by Sunday, that man would get up early, he would drive that van around, and he would pick up kids. And he would bring them to church so that they could hear the stories of Jesus and of God and understand that God loved them and cared for them. I think about the bridge. We have a partnership at Forest Grove Community Church with the bridge. And the Monday Night Kids program, you may not know this, is, is coordinated and run by a volunteer from the gathering. She's a member of Forest Grove Community Church. She's joined by at least three other folks from the gathering. And week by week, kids from the neighborhood come, and they serve those kids and play with them and tell stories and seek to share with them something of the love of God. Back to verse 5. 
It says, and anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. The pivotal phrase in that verse is on my behalf or in my name. What does it mean to welcome or be present to a child in the name of Jesus? What I hear there is it means as a representative of Jesus and all that he is and all that he stands for. So when we welcome a child in the name of Jesus, we're attentive to Jesus' purposes for that, for that child and his purposes for us. So in welcoming children in Christ's name, we're called to empty ourselves of our own agenda, our own striving for position and control or advancement, and simply listen and serve and care, knowing that Jesus comes to reign in the life of that child. So this isn't about idolizing kids. Sometimes as parents, we idolize kids. I think our culture is in big danger of idolizing kids. This is not about that, even for a moment. Recently, I read a statement that reduced the gospel to three words. The three words were, Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. Jesus is Lord. And so as we think about being faithfully present to children, it involves us allowing Jesus to be Lord in our hearts in those interactions, knowing that Jesus also desires to be Lord in the lives of the little ones with whom we have to do. And then notice this. Jesus identifies himself so closely with children that he says that in welcoming children, it's like we're welcoming him. Fitch in his book, Faithful Presence, says, The stunning reality is that being with children is an encounter with the living Christ. And I'm sure that we could have many stories told this morning of the many ways that you have encountered Jesus as you have been in that space with children. But here's the challenge. Just in case we sentimentalize this, which sometimes we're prone to do in church, this is about hard work, about sacrifice, about just showing up about being faithful, about being too tired, but doing it anyway. And somehow in the midst of that hard work, Jesus is present. I'm going to invite my wife, Amy, to come up. She's just going to share a few uh, of her experiences. This is just an excerpt of what I shared last week. Just go a little closer. An excerpt of what I shared last week with the gathering. Um, Brian told me to cut a whole bunch of it out, so (laughs) I'll just share a little bit. I grew up in a Christian home. My church had programming which taught me about Jesus and the stories of the Bible. There were some women who were dedicated to teaching us. In my eyes, they were very elderly, but looking back, they were probably in their 40s. (laughs) And there was great value in that, having the stories of God passed down to me. And in my teenage years of angst with my parents, I seriously considered walking away from God. I would say in my heart, well, if you are what Jesus is like, then I don't want anything to do with him. And God would whisper to my heart, but what about Sandy? She's not like that. What about Debbie? She doesn't act like that. There's more to me. I'm not like that. And I would again hold on to my faith. I've realized that the reason I love Jesus to this day is because I saw him at work in the lives of the adults I knew as a child. The reason I love the church is because when I went there on a Sunday morning, I felt loved by the adults that were there. Programs were okay, but the people were what I looked forward to every Sunday. Mr. Henderson, the Scotsman, 
who taught us the books of the Bible and always called my sister and I his gelis. I once hid in a window well and laid in wait for him, jumping out and yelling boo as he walked down the driveway to our church. It scared the poor man out of his wits, and he really was in his 70s. <laughs> Auntie May was no relation, but she always had a hug. I named my oldest daughter after her because I knew about her story of suffering and her faithful trust in God and surrender instead of bitterness. Norma Bailey was crippled by polio as a child and crawled on her knees to her first job interview as a teen. She faithfully taught me Sunday school, even though I was the only kid in her class. Debbie saw a tortured teenage girl and took me out for coffee and to plays and spent time outside of church with me, and there were many others. And the stories I heard, stories of amazing things God was doing in the lives of people I knew, missionaries who saw the power of Jesus defeat the curses and bondage of people they worked with, people were healed and lives were changed and restored, people who loved Jesus enough to give up their lives to live with the poor, men who gave up their lunch hour to spend time at the local teen hangout during the high school period. People who reported a sexual offender to the police and then visited him in jail and worked with him for healthy life reintegration after he was released. My life was shaped by these stories. This year, since we moved to the gathering, I've had lots of excuses that have kept me from getting involved with kids. I've been too busy. I work lots of Sundays. I'm a nurse. But really, I've realized it's because I didn't want to sacrifice the time that was fun that I had with the adults. And so as I've thought this through and realized it, I have gotten involved with the kids. And I just encourage you, as a way to follow Jesus, it's a, it's a cost. It definitely is a cost. You do sacrifice. But it's something that he's called us to, and the rewards are worth it. Thank you, Amy. So how do we tend to Christ's presence with, with children? By faithfully serving? And maybe by asking ourselves some simple questions. Lord, what are you up to now in this life, in this child? What opportunities are there to welcome this one or that one in your name? What gifts do you have today for this child and for me? So simple and yet so demanding. You can't do that without growing in love. So how does that relate particularly to a context like this? A large institution that has programs that are running. Let me just share a couple thoughts. Notice that Jesus doesn't say anything in here about parents. This isn't primarily about parents, and it's not primarily about programs of the church. This is about all of us. This is about you and me and our postures and our attitudes towards children and those who are young in the faith. Children's programs are one expression of the way that we welcome children in the name of Jesus as a church, but they cannot replace the genuine love and care that flows from all of our hearts towards children as we walk with them. It's easy in an institution like Attridge, like Forest Grove Community Church, to think that the church will care for our kids. And by church, I mean the staff and their teams. And there's a sense in which we, we pray for that and we long for the church programs to impact our kids, but that is not going to replace the impact of real relationships between all of us and the next generations. And Jesus says that as we do that, we're serving him. So this is about a different kind of a community. And as you know better than I do, church isn't intended to be a place where we show up to be served. Church is a place, not church isn't even a place. Church is a community, a group of people where we show up to serve. 
So here's my question for you. What's your posture around children? In our large group gatherings like this, in your small group, in your home, in your neighborhood, what's your posture around children? What do you need to do to be faithful to him and his agenda in your presence with children? I'm just going to give you a minute right now. We're going to take a a couple of moments. You can close your eyes if you want. Uh, I'm just going to sit down on this piano bench, and we're just going to be silent. So discipleship, again, is about hearing from Jesus and making incremental adjustments as he speaks to us, actually changing the way we think and live. So I'm going to give you a couple of moments. I'm going to do the same. What's Jesus saying to you about this, and how are you going to respond?